Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. This is Marianne Russo. It's the holiday season. I want to wish everyone a happy Hanukkah. And um, make your holiday list and check it twice with the Mayor Johnson Gift-Giving Guide. Mayor Johnson is your special education super source, and with their gift guide, they've made it easy to shop in three different ways. You can shop by price, category, or a specific solution. The perfect present is just a click away at mayor-johnson.com, and they really have unbelievable new products out there for all of your special education and special um, needs children. Um, as I said, this is Marianne Russo, and we have um, really a very different type of interview for us tonight. Um, you know, we're discussing a topic, the, the topic that really is very disturbing. Um, in this case, it's very extreme, it's heart-wrenching, and it's often something that's kept secret. And unfortunately, this is a topic that is, you know, happening in homes with children with developmental delays, autism, or mental illness. And tonight we will discuss the story of a mother, Kelly Stapleton, um, and she has a 13-year-old autistic child and uh, who is very aggressive. And although Carly's story involves autism, you know, parents with children with mental illness are also going through, um, you know, similar issues with their aggressive children. And uh, although it, this is not the norm for these children, it does happen. And these parents find themselves, as their children grow older and they get bigger, um, you know, very difficult to manage the children. Oftentimes, the home becomes um, very chaotic and very disruptive for all the siblings. So tonight, we'll hear a story um, of a child who's out of control, a mother who's living in chaos, and a family that's really begging for help. So um, joining us tonight will be Dr. Carol Lieberman. She is an internationally renowned media psychiatrist. Dr. Russell Hyken, who's been on our show before, he's an adolescent residential placement specialist, and Ariva Martin, an on-air legal analyst, president of Special Needs Network, and she's also an autism mom. So, Kelly, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Marianne. Um, you know, as I said, this is a very uh, sensitive topic. Um, it's going to bring out a lot of uh, strong opinions, a lot of emotions in people that are listening to it. Um, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your family? Sure. Um, I was a molecular biologist before I started having babies, and so then I became a stay-at-home mom, and I had three kids very close in age, and our middle daughter is the one who's affected by autism. And so um, 
a lot of the early years we did early intervention with her, and I was very busy with that. And since um, she started going to school, I've started a talk show. I do two of them now. I do um, birth stories on demand, where I feature women's birth stories, and then I just added dating stories on demand. So, um, so that's what I do now, and I do some public speaking and just try to figure out a way to eke out a living and kind of balance the whole autism intervention and our typically developing children and, and try to, you know, knit a life together with all of these different threads. Yeah, and, you know, I, I would imagine it must be difficult. Um, you know, um, we, we spoke previously, which is something I don't usually do before an interview. And, um, you know, your, your story really is, um, I would say, very extreme in, in this type of situation. So, you know, I'd like to, if you did first tell me, you know, how old was your daughter uh, when she was first diagnosed with autism? And, um, you know, is she verbal? I mean, from the the video that I've seen, it seems that she really is uh, significantly, uh, significantly impaired as far as communication. Sure. Um, about 18 months, when she was about 18 months old, um, there, we figured out there was something wrong. She had lost language, so she was one of those kind of late-onset autism. And um, right away, I was able to get involved in a low-vas replication program. So we set up a home program and, and worked. We did ABA therapy with her to the nth degree. I mean, whatever they said to do, we did it. Um, I remember specifically when she was two years old, and I said it out loud, which I shouldn't have, <laughs> and I said, you know, she may be autistic, but thank God she's not violent. And I swear to God, the next day, um, she had a, a fit and, and became violent and started hitting. And I just want you to know, this isn't behavior we model it. Hello? Hi, I'm sorry, I don't oh, know what happened. I'm sorry, yeah. Um, so so anyway, um, that that's when it started. It started when she was two years old. And I really... I really blame myself because I never got on top of that behavior. And we certainly tried. I mean, we did different things, you know, not reinforcing the behavior, reinforcing the behavior in the appropriate way, um, doing timeouts and making sure that we weren't, um, weren't encouraging escape behavior when she would have outbursts at school. You know, we just really tried hard to get on top of this behavior. And I think what happened was just as she grew and got bigger, I think her behavior pretty much has stayed the same and, well, maybe even a little more aggressive now. Um, but that's where we're now, at now. You, she outgrew me is what happened. Right. And, you know, that's difficult, especially when the, the behaviors aren't, um, you know, um, haven't haven't resolved at all. Um, you know, so she became violent at an early age. And, you know, I, I prefer to use the word aggressive. But um, who is she always um where is the aggression directed i mean is it always at home is it in different venues does she also have aggression at school um what is her present school setting well and i'm so glad you asked that because it was always directed toward me her um anger and aggression always toward me and i wondered if that was a consequence of doing a low vas replication program because i've been in her face since she was before she was two years old and it was touch your nose, touch the apple, do this, do that, you know, and, and maybe this is sort of a natural consequence to that. I'm I'm not really sure. But I'm sure at this point it's some sort of shaped behavior um, because sometimes even making eye contact with her will trigger a response. So I, I know that there's something going on there. Um, 
Right, because, it, well, I mean, you know, the eye contact is an overstimulatory thing, of, you know, from my understanding right. of it anyway. Right, uh, But has here, she, she... Yeah, our worst I'm sorry, fear was ahead. that it was, it was going to generalize. So, you know, that, that was always the worst fear because if it was just me, it sort of made sense. But um, in the last year, it really has started to generalize to other places. So it happened at school, and she was in sixth grade. She was with typically developing peers, working very closely to grade level, and in some things better than her peers at grade level. And she loved her friends. Her friends loved her. And for a kid who's not super social or super um, responsive to peers, you know, she really had a good, great a great group of friends. But she aggressed at school. She hit her teacher. She hit some of her friends. And she hit the principal. And we had to send her to a different school that would be able to address these kind of behaviors. And so she went from a typically developing school and peers to being on a bus two and a half hours one way to a neighboring school district in a very enclosed classroom. It's, it's really it was heartbreaking. It's, it's heartbreaking to have this. Yeah, and, you know, you had said that, you know, she does have these um, behaviors at school. And, um, you know, my my main concern when when you first wrote me um, was that she does have siblings. She has, a, I believe, an older brother and a younger sister. Did I get that yes. right? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, this this has to be affecting them. And um, you know, does, does her aggression, um, is it ever directed at her siblings? For her older sibling, never, never, ever. And for the younger one, she would target her as a way to get to me. So she would start moving toward her sister and look at me, knowing that I would head over there to intervene, and then she would be able to get her hands on me. And so with her younger sister, you know, we just really have to be careful because she can be in danger sometimes. Um, I haven't seen that probably in a year, but my youngest daughter, and, and this is where, yes, it does affect them, but I really think that we're doing a good job of managing it. For the younger one, um, Izzy was escalate, or my daughter was escalating one time, and um, my younger daughter was in the room, and my younger daughter just very quietly tiptoed into the closet door and shut the door. And when my daughter calmed down, I went and got the younger one out of the closet, and I just said, you are such an awesome kid. You could work for the CIA someday. You're so stealthy. You are so smart how you snuck into the closet like that and really try to not make it this horrific situation that it is, but really try to make well, how, it. How old is how- yeah, she's, I mean, you know that. She's that, that yeah, she's twelve. Right, because I mean that that has to, you know, I mean it's just it's it's it's, it's got to be a really terrifying experience for a sibling. Even um, we're going to go into now, um, you know, it has to be horrific for them to have that fear that it's going to happen to them, and it's got to be really, it has to affect them to see when she's violent towards you. Now, is she violent towards your husband at all? Yes, she is. Um, my husband. When the injury started getting worse and worse, my husband really changed his schedule as much as he could to be home when my daughter was home so that I was never alone with her. So my husband has taken 
a ton of the abuse that's directed toward me. Right. You know, I, I want to talk about some of the um, aggression because, you know, children, you know, tend to lash out, especially if they're overstimulated or if they're, um, you know, having some type of an exacerbation, oftentimes during medication changes. But, um, you know, this is really significant, Kelly. Um, tell us some of the injuries um, that you've sustained because, you know, I, I was just, I, I just found it mind-boggling. Um, you've been hospitalized how many times? Um, well, I've been to the hospital several times, um, but this week was the first time they, I ever had to be held overnight, and that was a level two trauma. Um, I she she got on top of me, and I just I couldn't get away, and so at some point she knocked me unconscious, and um, thankfully my youngest daughter was calling my husband, and he rushed home and was able to intervene and um but when I wasn't responsive he had to call 911 and then I was taken out by ambulance you know, and, and and the question that I had was you know obviously when you went to the hospital you told them what happened um, you know, what happens in this type of situation? I mean, I know that you told me that you've um, had in-home care, um, 24-hour in-home care, I believe you had told me um, at some point. But, um, you know, I, I, how, what what is the protocol for something like this? I mean, because it's a matter of, um, you know, this is repetitive now that this has happened to you. So, what did, what did the, I know you had called the police. What happens? Do you get any help, any support? There was one time, um, it was over a year ago, when, once again, um, I really was down and uh, couldn't get away, and I called 911. And this is a really small town that I live in, and so I knew I would probably know whoever the responder was, and they would probably know my daughter and know the situation. Well, um, when the officer came, she, I said, I'm really in trouble. This, you know, my my daughter is just really in attack mode right now, and and I need your help in getting her calmed down. And usually, just having another person kind of come onto the picture will calm her down. And and um and then the officer sort of looked at me and said, What? This little girl's hurting you? And it was really a lot of hostility directed toward me. And and I just said. You know, I, I think it's fine now. I, I really do. I, you know, you're right. That she's just a little girl, and and everything's fine. So, um, you know, I'm sorry I bothered you. And then, right at that minute, my husband came in, and um, and he could see that my eye was already swelling shut, and, and my lip was split, and and he could see it was a pretty bad episode. And he just explained to the officer, you know, this is what's what's happening. But so my my time that I called 911 you know, for help just wasn't just wasn't really very helpful and kind of made me feel like, okay, I she's right. I've got this daughter and, and this little girl, she can't keep doing this. She can't get on top of me. I, I you know, I've got to do a better job of, of protecting myself which would protect her. Yeah, because you know what I when I watched the video, I mean I I'll be honest with you, the first thought that came to my mind was you know, I know that you know she's she's obviously out of control at that point, but um, you know, I I, I would have liked to have been, seen you be able to restrain her somehow, um, you know, because I mean you were so hysterical and crying, and um, 
you know, I mean, she was just, it was just horrible to watch. It really was just horrible to watch. Um, you know, and I know that, um, you know, you said you've tried many therapies, and yeah. um, at some point you tried medications. I mean, and nothing um, that you've tried has, has helped her at all? Um, sometimes, sure. Um, medication, we really, I really feel very confident about what we've done with medication. We really, in a very systematic way, worked with the the best expert we could find in the field, which is Dr. Luke Sai, and he's at University of Michigan, and he actually wrote the book called Medicating Young Children with Autism. So that's our guy we went to, and we very systematically went through a lot of medications and different combinations, and some things would help an inch. Um, was it worth the side effects? You know, after a while, some were, and then after a while, some were not. And so... What I really determined after going through so many is that this is really a behavioral problem. This isn't really a brain chemistry problem. This is this is something we have to address behaviorally. Um, there's so many variables with taking medication. They'll work for a while, and then she gets older, or she puts on 20 pounds, and now they don't work as effectively. There's just a lot happening there, and I really, you know, I just really feel like um, the medication isn't the answer, but I'm always willing to try if something new comes on the market or, or somebody, you know, one of our doctors says, you know, let's try this. I've had some success with this or some success with that. So right now she is on a have you, um, have you uh, Has she had any type of residential um, treatment or, I mean, it sounds like you live in a very rural area. <laughs> we do. Um, well, we had this this one horrific situation, and I'm going to blog about this one of these days, but... We had a worker come in here, and um, she was great. She was um, kind of a just graduated from college age, so in her early 20s, very good about connecting with my daughter and could, you know, can do more than just sort of be a babysitter for her. Really tried to encourage my daughter to be interactive, and she was a great worker. And then she told me she was pregnant, and I was excited because my talk show that I do is all about pregnancy and births, and I just I couldn't have been happier. And then um, when I was out, she called 911, and she claimed that um, Isabel attacked her and caused her to have a miscarriage and um, had to go to the hospital. So when I came back home and was facing this situation, I called our social workers, and I said, you know, okay, this happened. My daughter just killed a baby, and, um, you know, I've been begging for help for so long, and now, and now, now look, now now what is going to happen to her? What's going to happen to our, to us, our souls? You know, she just killed a baby. Well, as it turns out, um, this young woman was faking the whole thing. She was doing this to get attention from her boyfriend, who was out of state, and um, and it came through in court later on. So, But in the meantime, when we thought our daughter was a baby killer, we had her put in a state-run hospital um, for, for teenagers in the Detroit area. Uh, the state psychologist helped us do that. Um, the social workers, everybody helped us get her in there for an emergency placement. They don't treat autistic kids at this particular hospital. This was just an emergency placement. And it was not a good placement. And... Um, so as soon as we figured out what was going on and that this, there really wasn't even a pregnancy, much less a miscarriage, um, we got our daughter right out of there. But we were all traumatized by this. We, we were all. Well, let, let me, Kelly, let me ask you. Um, 
you know, obviously um, the aggression is significant, um, that you actually had written that you feared for your life. Yes. Um, so, you know, before we bring the ex- experts on, I, I just want to ask you, you know, are you receiving any type of therapy, counseling, or are your, the siblings receiving any type of um, counseling or therapy? No, no. Mm-mm. Okay. Um, yeah, because, you know, I think that would be really key to all of this um, for the for the dynamics that are going on you know, between you and your daughter yeah. and the, the children and the siblings, you know, have to be affected. I mean, I don't know where you live. I don't, I don't even want you right. to go down. But, um, you know, it just seems to me that, um, you know, you, you, you're not going to get anywhere until you get some help. And, well, you know, that's why I'm I, trying to... Well, here's how I think of it, is I'm... My family and I were in a we're in a, a seaworthy boat, and our daughter, who is disabled, is floating in a dinghy that is not very seaworthy. And there's lots of people on boats all around us, and they all say, "Hey, your daughter needs help," and and hey, you know what's going on with you guys? And and you know, well, what about you, Kelly? Are you getting the help that you need? What about your family? And and every time I say. No, let's not look at here. Our boat's fine. Look at that one. That you know, redirect over here. Take care of that one. Take care of the one in the dinghy. Right, but Kelly, 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 Kelly. It's your boat's not fine. <laughs> I can clearly tell you, your <laughs> well, boat's not fine. Time, I think there's time um, to to address that once she's once we get her behaviors under control. Okay, I think so right let's, now bring, let's bring let's okay. bring let's bring them on because I don't think we're going to get her country. You're going to get her. Behaviors under control um, until the, you know the, there's a lot of um, coordinating going on. So um, why don't I bring on first Dr. Carol Lieberman? Um, you know, Dr. Lieberman, I know that you have um, some strong opinions on this, and um, you know this interview really wound up being a lot different than I thought um, it was going to go. Um, but you know, I, I do think that there are a lot of parents that. Um, are dealing with children that are very aggressive. So at first, why don't we start um, with Kelly, and then if you could just um, talk to other parents that may be in a different situation dealing with children that have aggression issues. Sure. Um, well, Kelly, first of all, you know, to to start with your uh, metaphor of the dinghies, um, you know, parents are, I mean, a family you can't really separate one member of a family. Some one person in a family, particularly like what you just described about your daughter, is affecting everybody. You, your husband, your other two children, you can't separate the dinghy. She's still attached. I mean, unless, you know, that's a potential kind of uh, solution that we could talk about, but as far as the basic issue, I think you're in a lot of denial. You know, one of the things that um, Marianne had mentioned that you had told her in your conversation before that hasn't come out yet is that you wear a, a do not resuscitate bracelet. Yes, yes, I do. Well, you know that, and, and I understand that apparently that's because you're afraid that if she, if you get beaten to the point of brain damage, you would prefer to die. But you know, of course, that you can make your wishes um, not just about that, but anybody can make their wishes about whether they want to be resuscitated or not by telling a member of their family. They don't have to wear, and they don't usually wear, a do not resuscitate a bracelet. So what that tells me is that consciously or unconsciously, you're very depressed. Well, first of all, you're depressed, even though it, you know you, you seem to 
it's, you're trying to rise above that, but you're you're at the at the expense of being in denial. And a part of you does want to die. Perhaps you feel guilty that she was born with autism. A lot of parents feel guilty about um, children having mental illness or various problems. Not that, of course, it's not your fault, but um, but there's something you know you, you're blaming yourself. Um, or you're feeling, you're, you know, you, whether it's that you're thinking that you did something wrong when she was two that made her start lashing out more at you, um, but, but you know, so obviously, but the, at, at a minimum, it shows that her behavior is certainly devastating to you, and and something has to happen quickly before. I mean, can you imagine what if, what if she did something that did ultimately. Um, whether you had the bracelet on or not, that did ultimately either cause you to die or cause you to be have a, a severe problem. I mean, aside from that impacting you, it would impact her and it would impact everybody in your family. So, you know, and, and it's interesting um, when we started and Marianne was asking you to tell us about yourself, the first thing you said was that you were a molecular biologist before you had kids. So I don't know if if maybe you're feeling that you wish uh, that if that you could still be doing that, um, you know, and and but your kids are taking so much, no, especially your daughter is taking so much time away. I, I don't know, but I I do know that there's enough here for a psychiatrist to to do a lot of therapy for a long time. And it is interesting that your daughter had this. You know that what you said that um, right after you said thank God she wasn't violent that the next day she was violent. It, there does seem to be some kind of um, power struggle between the two of you, and you know whether it had to do with what you were saying about that you were always trying to help her and in her face. I, I don't. I you know it would take a while to figure out exactly what's at the root of it, but you certainly need to do that. That has to be done, and you can't just kind of be Pollyanna about it and say, well, she's just in this dinghy. <laughs> you need to be in therapy. She needs to be in therapy, um, you're, and, and you need to be in therapy. The two of you together need to be in therapy, your family therapy. I mean, that um, that's sort of a given. That's a, that's a basic thing that you need to do. And as far as medication, you know, medication, I always say, um, medication is a Band-Aid. And uh, people need to be in therapy, and, and the medication helps people to deal with therapy and to be more um, aware and, and calmer and so on in therapy and to, to get it better. But um, but that's not the the medication is not the only solution. You know, it's not a solution in itself. But I think a combination of medication and psychotherapy for for your daughter, for you, for the family, is really what you need here. Otherwise. Um, otherwise, you know, it's heading towards something much darker. Somebody's going to get hurt, um, or she's going to be put in an institution where you're not going to have much choice about it. You know, Dr. Lieber, I'm glad that you mentioned that about the medication and um, therapy because, you know, that's something that's a very common thread among my interviews, which is that the medication really isn't the answer. The medication help you get to the answer through the therapies, um, whatever therapies you may choose. Um, You know, and, you know, I I, I agree that, you know, Kelly, really that in order to get all of this under control, everybody has to have, you know, become whole in some way. And, um, you know, I really hope that, um, you know, 
that you're able to find someone there that can, especially for for your neurotypical children. Um, but you know, Dr. Lieberman, in a case where um, you know, say a, a parent has a child with mental illness, say bipolar or schizophrenia, where they do have these outbursts, um, you know, a lot of times they find that they cannot get the support that they need. That um, quality residential care is just very expensive, and and really they lose hope. So you know how. If, if you, if someone came to you that had this situation, you know, how would you help them to to just keep going on? Well, you know, first of all, um, well, I, I would do. You know, I would be seeing um, in various combinations. You know, sometimes the daughter alone, sometimes you Kelly alone, sometimes you know various combinations of family members. I would be seeing you in therapy. I would, I would first. Um, see your daughter and, and try to figure out a better medication regime. But at the same time, when I, when I said first, I mean, really, it's at the same time as the therapy is going on. And the problem is these days, and I'll admit it, I mean, it, it saddens me, um, a lot of psychiatrists uh, just do these so-called mid-visits where they see the person, whether it's a child mm-hmm. or an adult, for just a really brief period of time, 15, 20 minutes, and all they're doing is prescribing a medication. They send the person out, and um, and 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 bad things happen because you can't. In fact, uh, as a, one of the things I do is work as an expert witness, and there have been more and more malpractice cases because of what happens to the patient in between these once a month med visits. You know, people horrible things happen in between. So you need to find a psychiatrist who does both the, the therapy and the medication. And I know it's a little harder these days to find than it used to be, but you can find that. And that's really the, you know, intensive psychotherapy along with finding the best medication at the time. I've never heard of psychotherapy for an autistic child, though. She's not really verbal. So what? Well, how would you communicate with her? How would you be able to have any sort of breakthroughs? I, I guess I just don't understand what that would look like. Well, you know, it's it's not, um, I mean, it, it's at sort of a more uh, basic level or a more level, you know, where you're, you're using stuffed animals or you're using um, play therapy kinds of things. You're using, um, you know, you're not sort of having them tell you about their dreams necessarily. I mean, not deep, uh, sophisticated, difficult things. But you you go to whatever level they're at, and then you can you can sometimes get uh, a little deeper. You'd be surprised, you know, just even what you said. That was such an amazing comment that you made. That you had said, "Thank God she's not violent." And the next day she was violent. That that shows that there's some, you know, she's putting things together there. Um, and you know, so, I think also I just want to interrupt okay. you, but I think that also it it really is the reason why it's so important for you, your husband, and the siblings. Um, to be in therapy, am I correct, Dr. Lieberman? Because yes, yes. you know, she, she, her, her ability um, to make changes is compromised. So you know, that's why it's so important for everyone else to get the tools that they need um, to help her. But um, you know, Kelly, you also we spoke about the fact that you did find a really great placement for her, um, and it is um, affiliated with Kennedy Krieger, which is just outstanding autism, um, yeah. and. You, you run into um, a bit of a problem because it's a new facility. They have the bed for her. They think it's a perfect placement, but your insurance isn't going to cover it. So um, I'd like to bring on um, Dr. Russell Hyken. And um, 
Yes. Dr. Hyken, you know, I know that this this happens all the time, and it, it's, you know, not just with autism. It's, I think it's even more prevalent with um, t- kids and teens with mental illness. So, you know, wh- how does a parent deal with a situation like this? Um, those are all great questions. And, and before we get into sort of talking about residential, I just want to fully concur with Dr. Lieberman as a family systems trained psychotherapist. The family systemic impact that this child is having on the family members is huge. And to really encourage you to find somebody in your area that can help, you know, let your, your other kids and husband and you process all of that. Um, but anyway, um, as I move on to talking about residential, I, I think, um, you know, the comment that, you know, insurance doesn't cover residential is, is a significant comment and, and a very true comment too um, but there are ways to get things funded and it varies very much from state to state for example I am in Missouri and Missouri is not big on funding a lot of residential treatment for kids but across the river from where I live in the state of Illinois Illinois is um, much more willing to fund kids that they can't educate and um, one of the comments that I heard earlier today was, or earlier tonight, was that you know that, that your daughter was bused two and a half hours away. You know, my, my gut response was you need to get an education attorney because that is not a free and appropriate education. I mean, to bus somebody two and a half hours away to get the education that they need would seem to be inconsistent with the educational laws. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so that would be my first thought: like, how do you get the state to fund something like that and try and go off insurance? Um, I, I would be that that would be one solution. Um, I have had families who have been in pretty drastic situations that have moved to other states because other states are more willing to finance these situations. That's certainly a pretty drastic option, but something you know that, that could be considered. Um, I think finding somebody such as myself in your area or outside of your area to kind of help you navigate through all of this would be, you know, a great way to explore different options. Um, and so I think you're just really in this sort of complicated circle. You've got to start kind of getting out there and figuring out what's available. There are loans out there. There are um, scholarships out there. So there's a lot that's out there, but it's finding what's out there and figuring out how to get to it. Right. Um, yeah, Kelly, have you explored oh, you know, those options? I know that that well, was um, something that you were very concerned about this week. Sure. Um, well, I went to our local community mental health agency and um, told them that insurance doesn't cover, this is something that you're going to have to cover. And the kids who are already placed at this facility, their local CMHs are paying the bill. So I went to our CMH and said, okay, found this place. They're going to take her, and we think it's a good fit. The state psychologist who consults on our case thinks it's a good fit. Everybody is all sunshine and puppy dogs, and they just flat out refuse to pay. So, um, you know, so I'm trying to think of options here. Um, I, I didn't know they had scholarships. I think that's something I can look into. I can definitely call the, the facility. You know, I would pick up stripping, except nobody wants to see that. I'm 40 years old. I'm too old for porn. So now what do I do? And um, the the cost is, the number that's been thrown around is $250,000. And um, that's because once they place a child there, they keep them there until they feel like they've got their behaviors under control, and then they release them under really controlled circumstances with very intense in-home treatment, you know, to follow through so that, so that they're a success, which is exactly what what we want. But $250,000, it could be up to a year placement for her. And frankly, I think my daughter is pretty smart, and I think she's going to catch on pretty quickly. I don't think she's going to have to spend a year in there. We certainly don't want her gone from our home for a year. 
but we would like her to have the treatment and we'd like it to be done in the way in which it's supposed to be done. Well, and Not, I'm going to jump in and say it's going to yeah. take it, that, that year is probably I'm going to say maybe even on the short side. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, and, and the really? reason behind that is is that a lot has to happen. So we're going to sort of um, work with the behaviors in a good residential setting. So I would probably first start with an assessment facility of some kind. Um, you know, a 30 to 60 day or 30 to 90 day program where you know the, the clinicians um, out number the kids, and we get a really good read observationally. They may try medications in that process and see what works and what doesn't work. They'll be doing all different kinds of therapy from experiential and sensory work to, you know, uh, family therapy and and working with you to really figure out where this kid is at and what this child is capable of. Then from there, I'd probably be looking at step two, which would be a longer-term residential option. Um, And the 250 for a year sounds high, even with what I do, and most of what I do is expensive, uh, you know, day rates in these facilities that are sometimes covered by insurance, but most often not. But I, I, I do believe that, you know, you're probably looking, you know, at a pretty high dollar amount. And I think the significance of the time frame is because a lot's got to happen. So first off, this child needs to understand how to react and how to have the coping mechanisms to uh, behave appropriately. And then the family also needs to be brought into the process. So this is a whole family systemic issue going on. Um, if a child comes home too quickly, the family's not ready. So you start staging visits. Also, by the behaviors you're describing, you know, the question I would have to ask, and I am only hearing this story now, so forgive the question, but are we talking about a child that truly needs life planning um, versus, you know, somewhere somebody can go to, you know, 9, 12, 18 months of residential and really get what they need to understand how to function safely in the home. And that's a question I couldn't ask or tell you. And when I say life planning, you know, they may go to a facility and may be able to come home, but what kind of support systems do you need after that? Um, so there's just a well, lot of questions. Back, and that's what I was just going to I was just going to ask you because I think a very big part of the success of any type of a program is having the family involved. Yeah. So what role does it play? Because I know a lot of, um, you know, say people here from the East Coast send their kids out West. So how would that work? Um, Let's say she was, you know, hours away. Um, You know, how would the family learn um, how to interact with the child when the child comes home if there's a, a, a distance involved? Sure. So typically it's going to be a a staging of a different series of visits. So I'll just sort of speak generally. So while the child is at the facility, there is at a minimum weekly sort of family therapy going on, and more and more programs are using Skype-like situations, um, a little bit more secure than Skype. But So you're doing family therapy, and it is face-to-face even though you're in different states, and it's actually pretty amazing. Um, And I've seen that all about. So so there's your first thing. So you're doing sort of weekly there. Then they're going to start staging visits at the program. And the visits at the program are going to be short at first. Maybe you go and you do a therapy session, you do lunch, you play a game with your child, and then it's time to go and you can come back the next day. Um, then, you know, maybe you do that a couple of times. Things are going well. The child's progressing at the program. So next the family comes and maybe tries an off-campus visit in the area. Go stay at a hotel or a condo, do something in the area to see how things are. Then at that point, if that's gone well, then maybe we start to have visits home for limited periods of time, slowly building into, um, you know, a bigger, like, return to home. And during those home visits, you're also starting to work with local professionals that might be uh, uh, working with the family and the child and those local professionals. A good consultant such as myself will be putting the local professionals in touch with the program. So there's just this big, huge coordinated effort um, that often somebody... And, you know, since you're... 
Yeah, and you know, talking about community, I want to bring in Ariva Martin. Ariva, I'm sorry that you've been, um, you know, holding so long, but um, you know, really, the, you are one of the, the strongest advocates I know. And you know, community is going to play a big role in healing a family like this. So, um, you know, what would you have to say on this situation and how she could get herself some support? Yeah, you know, you raise a really good point, uh, Marianne, and I think some of the advice, and most of the advice that the doctors have given is, is just, you know, dead on correct. And first of all, Kelly, my, my heart goes out to you, you know, uh, in a first and foremost, I'm a mom of a son who has autism, so I, I come at this both as a professional and oh, as a parent. Yeah. So no. <laughs> I know how challenging it is, and you get a lot of information, and you know, sometimes confusing to know what is the best information and how do you sort through the information to make the best decision. So just know that, you know, whatever you've done to date, I know you've done it with love and with, you know, great attention to care and that you are an advocate for your daughter because you're seeking out help. So that's the first thing that an advocate does is recognize when there is a need for help. So, you know, you are so important to your daughter's uh, continued success. I I want you to feel really good about what you have done. And and there's some options for you. Uh, Marianne asked a question about special education attorneys. I I hear a couple of things. One, your whole issue of faith, you know, your entitlement to a free, appropriate public education. And sometimes that does include a school paying for a very specific placement that could include a home place or placement outside of home in a special residential facility, particularly if it's determined by a team of assessors that that's what your daughter needs to access her education. So I don't want to rule out the possibility that the school has some financial responsibility for some type of placement. The denial by your county health agency sounds troubling to me because ultimately if your daughter is taken by the Department of Children's Services and has to be placed in some type of county facility, the county would be on the hook for that. So I wouldn't give up on that county placement. And you said there are other kids in this facility that have county funding. So we need to dig a little deeper as to how that county funding was made available, but yet they're telling you it's not available. And the third piece you know, Reba, wasn't there just piece. a Supreme Court um, case um, that um, was about districts having to pay for placements and evaluations? There is uh, a Supreme Court case that talks about placement, that talks about uh, public schools responsibility, which is again why I don't want Kelly to give up on her public school, mm-hmm. and I don't want you to give up on your health insurance. The health insurance piece around autism is evolving, and again, probably about I don't know 25 to 29 states or so have enacted mandate coverage, so private health insurance are under an obligation to cover. Uh, autism and autism therapies, and it looks very different from state to state, but getting a lawyer involved in your case that understands the insurance laws, understands the insurance codes, uh, also who understands understands special education law is going to be very important because there's three avenues I see, the school, your private health insurance, and your county facility, all of whom I would submit have some responsibility. It's just a question of you know, how do you get all three of them engaged to get the funding that's necessary for your daughter? So it uh, seems like there's a lot of work, and I know it can be daunting, 
and overwhelming, uh, but from everything I've been listening to, your daughter is in real need of some help, and if she doesn't get it now, I don't see her being able to live with you, you know, as a young adult. I see her being placed in some kind of institution, the kind that you said she was in, that state facility that was so horrific. I see that as, you know, where she's headed if she doesn't get the kind of intensive intervention now. And and money, I'm just not going to believe, uh, is going to be an obstacle uh, in terms of this little girl, this young girl, getting what she needs. Right. And, you know, Ariva, I mean, you know, and, um, you know, so the special education advocates that are out there, I mean, when you go in, a lot of these districts just say, no, we don't have the funding. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, no doesn't mean that they're not violating your rights. Yes. Right. That doesn't mean that your child's rights aren't being violated. Absolutely, and particularly when you need something that's not standard. You know, if it's not just a mainstream issue of placement in a segregated classroom or, you know, a couple of hours of speech therapy, I would not expect a district to pay for this without a legal battle. Uh, but I do see it as a battle that you could be completely successful. And like I said, I see three pots of revenues that you can pursue uh, to get this accomplished. So, you know, before I come back and ask you for your final thoughts, um, Kelly, you know, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, I hope you know that you can really, that this can be turned around. And, um, you know, I think that the advice um, that's been given is just, you know, I'm ho- I hope that you're getting some hope from it because you, this child cannot be turned down and you are not alone. Um, you know, and how do you feel about, um, you know, what the doctors and um, Ariba have said to you tonight? Well, the, the school as an aspect, I have to tell you that my husband is an administrator at the school district where we live, and it's a very small school district, and I really feel pretty confident in saying they really don't have the money to, I mean, these kinds of dollars that it would take. Not that they don't have some responsibility, but, um, I mean, we're talking a really small rural school district here. And my county agency um I believe they can afford to pay, but they would cry the same cry that they are t- too small of an agency to be able to pay for this. So, Kelly, what I well, stop you, you right there, Kelly. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. I have to stop you. You, it is not your responsibility mm-hmm. to figure out how a county agency and a public school district will fund what is legally, uh, what they're legally obligated to provide for your daughter. Do not let them off the hook. You're counting their dollars, and I'm here to tell you that the law is not written based on the budget of school districts. The law is a mandate in terms of particularly under IDEA, so the issue of how it's funded is not your issue, and you're defeating your – you're already taking a position of defeat before you even give it a try, and I don't want you to Absolutely. do that. You don't have to do that. Yeah, I mean, busting your child. I don't care how they got to get it done. Get it done. Yeah, I mean, busting your child far away is not an educational solution to your situation. I totally concur with that comment that a free and appropriate education is required by law. So you may need to get an attorney. Right. Exactly. Um, Dr. Lieberman, your your final thoughts on this? Well, Kelly, I, I hope I know I threw a lot at at you. You know, sort of instant analysis in ten minutes, but. Uh, but I was just trying to give you some insight into some things and to sort of, um, oh, I don't know, just to kind of uh, get you to, to wake up a little bit from the denial and, and look at things a different way because I think it's so important um, to to get the whole family on the right track and to, to acknowledge for yourself. I think you've been a martyr through all of this 
And, you know, as many parents who have special needs children wind up being, and you've tried your best, and, and um, but it takes a great toll on you. I mean, it's just, shock, you know, a very shocking kind of thing, to, even for your other kids and your husband, to see you wear a do-not-resuscitate uh, band on yourself, and, and not to mention what that's doing to your own psyche. So I think that you, I hope that you um, can see that there is help that the whole family needs help. There is help available. You just have to find the the right person, the right people, um, and and to sort of open, you know, bring out the worst thing that could happen besides the violence or aggression. The worst thing is everybody's kind of alone in their in their feelings and burying their feelings. And really, this is such an emotional kind of thing that's been going on for each of you. So you need to get those kinds of feelings out. What it's like for your for your other children to see all this happening. What it's like for your husband to to feel that he's not protecting you, you know, can't protect you every minute. All kinds of of complex emotions just need to be put out on the table in therapy. Well, and I think that I, I'm all, I'm all set for that. Like I think that would be a really wonderful thing to be able to sit down with somebody who's a professional and have them help us work through all of these things. But I can't do it while we're still living in the middle of it. I, I'd like to get her taken care of. Let's get her into a safe environment before she does something that can't be undone, like taking you know, taking Kelly, me away. I, I really, I, 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 you know, I completely understand that, and I, you know, I can. I think that sometimes love makes you, uh, especially with parenting a child with such significant needs, that you it becomes a fear factor. So you have fear of the medications because of the side effects. And I'm not talking about you. I'm speaking of us. I'm a special needs parent. Um, you know, you have fear of a placement. And I think you're right. I think that you need to really calm the situation down, and you, you are going to need to heal yourself and your family. So really this placement is key for you. And like we said, this isn't you asking a favor of your district. This is the law. This is what your child is entitled to. And this can be turned around. She's still young. This can be turned around. Yes. And, you know, it's 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 so hard to be in your shoes. And I know that, you know, we've been very strong with you tonight. But I really, you know, any parent out there that has a special needs child, especially a child that's significantly impaired, feels for you. And I really hope that you're able to get the help that you need. And you know something? If you can't get the placement right away, you still... You, it may not be as strong as you think. Going and seeing somebody may be a good thing for you, may help you get the strength to go and get the special education attorney and to fight for your daughter's rights. Well, and one thing I've heard, too, Marianne, um, just from the kind of the corners of the room, too, is that um, I, it's not that I want her out of our house. It's not that I want to sit down and eat bonbons and I don't have to worry about her anymore. We want her to have treatment. I want her to have treatment as quickly and as efficiently as possible, and I want to have her back into my arms and back into this house, and I want her to stay here for the next 70 years. We're prepared for that. She's ours. We're happy with her. We love her. But we can't parent her effectively right now with these behaviors. So we're just, you know, this is, I just want to move on so we have a good life, but we've got to get past this this problem we have, and it's a complicated problem, <laughs> but this is where I feel oh. 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want her to go away and live somewhere forever and ever. And um, Dr. Heiken, you scared the crap out of me when you said that it could be over a year for hospitalization. That's not what I want for her. Well, for but, us. But let's, let's, so, but don't use the word hospitalization here because that's not what I'm talking about. We're not talking about this kid in a hospital. Um, Absolutely. We're talking about in a residential treatment center, school-like environment. Um, some of these programs do incredibly wonderful things. And so I think if you knew the bigger world that was out there, yes, that is a long time, and I totally feel for you. I feel for everything that you're going through. I, I work with families every day of the week, and I hear these stories, and my heart goes out. But I also know from experience that it, it, it's not a quick process that it does take a while because everybody has to be integrated into it. The ultimate goal is to turn that child back to home and move her into, you know, a behavioral functioning that everybody in the house can live with happily. And so it just doesn't happen quickly. I mean, it took her, you know, 12, 13 years to get to this point. Um, You know, three or four months of residential um, isn't the fix. And the reason why it has to be longer is because we're going to try and normalize that environment. So think of it more of like a therapeutic boarding school environment for special needs children children where they can learn day-to-day functioning, go to classes, have um, experiential therapies, and also have um, social activities and integrate the family into that. So, yeah, it is scary. I, I totally understand that. But I also know that it sounds like we're dealing with a really complicated kid, and I wouldn't want to underscore the importance of that length of time. And I, I and when these lot. kids wind up, you know, Kelly, when the kids wind up in the right placement, in the, in the right residential placement where maybe they have equine therapy or different types of therapies, they really become comfortable in the stability of where they are and in their setting. And, you know, what also, from what I've heard from other families, is that it gives the family time to heal, to calm to have some normalcy in their life so that when they, the child does come back, they're coming back to a much calmer, um, you know, much better environment because this isn't your fault. You mean the, the, the environment is chaotic right now. So you deserve a break, your kids deserve a break, and she needs to be the best person she can be. And I just wanted to underline that I agree with Dr. Hyken that, yes, I mean, I've seen that myself, that, um, you actually, it would be a wonderful thing if you can somehow get the funding and, and get it together to have the longer the better in a sense. I mean, however long it's going to take for her, to, however much time she needs. Um, and yes, because the whole, the, the idea would be not only to help her to get better, but to integrate the whole family, the system, where everybody is, is operating um, together more harmoniously. And I just want to, you know, kind of a final comment about why getting a team together, Kelly, is so important. These are really complex issues, and you're not, as a parent or as an advocate, expected to know all of the nuances of the federal law, the state law, the insurance law, you know, your local county ordinances, all of those things that may impact your daughter and your entire family. But there are professionals uh, that, you know, that this is what they do, and you want to Build a team. You want to build a team of professionals that really know this area, that can really come together and and act in your daughter's best interest. It will take so much stress off of you and so many of the pressures that you're feeling in terms of trying to figure all of this out to have others who are fighting on your behalf and on behalf of your daughter and your family. And the families that I see that do that, uh, you know, they just fare better. They fare better because these systems are very complex to navigate and they can be overwhelming. The families start to feel beat down, 
and they give up and they start accepting the no's when really there are options. So I just hope, you know, that, that you've been encouraged by the advice given today and other parents who are listening, you know, that they're encouraged, uh, that they're, as Marianne said, not alone, but there's help. There is help in this, this autism community, the disability rights community. Uh, is a very strong and very powerful community with lots of resources. Well, and then, so, well, um, Ariva, then, so should I find a, a good attorney and then do we hire them as a family and, and then have them, you know, do this? go to the school and go to the county agency? Is that how is that how you go about it? Yes. I would start with finding a special ed attorney in your community uh, that can sit down and assess what offers have been made through the IEP process, what, uh, you know, assessments have been done, what the recommendations are, and that can help you put together a strategy and give you good recommendations about how to engage, again, both the school district the county, and your private health insurance. So you want someone to look at all three of those possible funding sources. And I've seen uh, in California in particular that the county facilities will work with school districts, and sometimes the funding is from both agencies. So it doesn't have to be an either-or situation. It might be the county picking up some part of it and, you know, the school picking up the educational piece because, you know, the school's obligation is the education, but the county mental health, agency may pick up the, you know, the, the mental health piece of it. So there are a lot of different components here, and you just need someone that's skilled uh, in this area to look at all of those components and can make the appropriate arguments and, you know, access these funding sources. But they're there, and that's what I would, I just want you to know, there is help available to you. Okay. And do not worry Absolutely. about the of these and, big and, agencies. Yeah, because the money is there. I mean, listen, we know that the state of the economy, but the, the money is there for these kids, and you are going to be denied at first. But also don't rule out um, having the treatment center in particular that you're interested in collaborating on this as well because, you know, oftentimes they will deal with your insurance companies, they will deal with your districts, they will deal with your special education attorney because this is what they do. So, you know, you, you have a lot of options that you haven't explored, but, you know, I think that some two of the words that – Ariva just used a very important, and she used the word strong and powerful. And, you know, I want you to know that I really do admire you for coming on because what you're doing is very strong, very powerful, and you were very brave to come on and talk about this because you're not just speaking for yourself. You're speaking for all of those people that have been sending me DMs and sending me emails saying, thank you so much. I'm in the same position. So you're not alone, and there is help out there for you. Okay. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us. I really appreciate it, Dr. Lieberman, um, Dr. Hyken, and Ariva. Thank you so much. I think you're going to help a lot of parents. Thank and you. you know, I really hope that, uh, you know, Kelly, that you're able to get some things accomplished. Yes, yeah, stay strong, Kelly. Good luck. Kelly. Good we're luck. pulling for you. Yes, we're all the best. Thank you. I'll, okay. I'll keep you both in here. Thank great you. Too. Thank you. Well, Kelly, anything you need that we can help you with, we're here for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, it was, I just wanted, it, it was a lot to take in all at once tonight, but maybe you know you'll be able to hear this show again, maybe a couple of a couple of different times, and and get a little bit more out of it. You know, when you can listen, when it isn't isn't all coming to you all at once. Right. So I wish you well. Thank you, Doctor Lieberman. Well, you know, Kelly, I wish you I wish you the best, and you know, ever the other listeners that are out there. There, there's help. 
So, you know, just don't give up. You are your child's best advocate. So, you know, you, you use the, your resources and whatever you need, and, um, you know, help is there. Um, I just want to mention our next show coming up on Ask Stephanie with host Stephanie Weiss is um, worry, when worry isn't just worry. It's about child anxiety, and it's going to help um, kids, uh, help parents know when worry really is a problem and when it's just a normal development. So that's going to be next Sunday. We hope to see you then. And again, happy holidays, and thank you to Mayor Johnson for sponsoring the show. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.